Welcome to the Utah Episcopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah designed to reflect on the Episcopal Church in our very unique land of Utah. I'm Craig Worth, the Diocese of Utah, and today, wonderful guests. Really, really interesting in that we have, um, well, we have Russ Pack, who comes to us from St. Paul's, one of the really established but fascinating parishes in our diocese. It goes back uh, 120-some years, and not that Russ does, but he has looked at every picture, every book, and he'll be talking about that. And Kurt Cook, who is, of course, one of our uh, favorites, he is the official historian of the diocese. And you don't get much better than that. He has looked at every picture, every record, and he knows everything about the diocese. But more than just being a story of history, this is going to be why we are what we are today, which started in our history actually in July. And July is a big history month for pioneers in Utah. And there are some pioneers that came here in 1867. One Bishop Tuttle got off the stagecoach and just looked around and said, well, I'm here and this is my church. And Kurt, why don't you pick it up at that point? Um, how did this happen? Why did he look out here? And what was so special about Utah? And what did he think other than, oh, my God, where am I? Ha, that's that's really good. Maybe a little bit of background would be sure. prior to the missionary district of Montana with jurisdiction in Idaho and Utah. It was a part of a much bigger group. And the bishop assigned to that used to refer to himself as the bishop of all outdoors. So General Convention decided that we probably ought to narrow this down so we can send people who have a chance of being successful in bringing the gospel to people who might need to learn a little different version of it, especially out here in Utah. Uh, so Bishop Tuttle, being young, vibrant, vigorous, accepted the challenge. And he was from New York. He was a refined person, wasn't he? Oh and gosh. here he was, stepping into this world that... Um, I know he said the first thing he wanted was a hot bath. It was that bad. <laughs> yeah, I would, it, think it took about a week to get from Denver to Salt Lake on the stage. And, you know, conditions, you know, you're, what's not a nice Marriott hotel every night or, <laughs> or even as good as a Motel 6, you know, it was tough and hot. And, you know, the weekly bath was probably really necessary even in cities, let alone hot, dusty stage travel. But Bishop Tuttle really had a desire to change people's lives, um, utilizing the Episcopal Church and our beliefs. So he came out here vigorous. Uh, I've often thought about looking at the old pictures, dusty roads, and the main horsepower was exactly that back then. And so there was, you know, on hot days, it was probably really aromatic uh, and challenging. Uh, so he came here and found a few people waiting, you know, hoping for someone to come lead them. He was one of the first that was non-predominant um, faith. He was one of the first that wasn't a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to step foot here. Now, he wasn't, there had been others who had come here, but uh, why Salt Lake? You know, he was the Bishop of Montana, and I know he did spend a lot of time in Montana, Idaho, and various places, but what was it about Salt Lake that the Eastern Church just felt, we got to have somebody out there? The biggest challenge to the folks in the East and across most of the country at that time, 
as it was, was polygamy. It really caused a lot of heartburn and they felt it was wrong. So they wanted to send someone like Bishop Tuttle to help educate people, if for better, lack of a better term, uh, about a better way. And you know, Bishop Tuttle came here and he didn't openly antagonize the LDS residents. He thought that, you know, I can disagree and disagree uh, with all my belief, but I can be civil. And he felt that was a better way of presenting the, the beauty of the Episcopal Church. Russ, you know uh, from the basis of St. Paul's, which goes back to when? Uh, about 18-something or other. Yeah, exactly. So the, so the, the, the construction of the first St. Paul's was 1878 and consecrated in 1881. So it's that far back. So since that time in the 1870s, and keeping in mind that's only 25 years since that first LDS pioneer and only 10 years since Bishop Tuttle arrived, what was it like to be a not only just an Episcopalian, but a non-Mormon at that time in Salt Lake? And um, was this a respite for them? Was it a, a way that... Uh, was it antagonistic? What was the climate and when they decided to build this um, beautiful church? And, of course, St. Mark's Cathedral was going by then. And there had been churches in Corinne. Um, and, and by that time, there was some plans and churches in Ogden. But what was it? What was it like, do you think? You've looked at the pictures. You've read the letters. You've seen it. To be something other than a Mormon in Salt Lake City. Yeah, so, and, I, and I'll kind of relate the story as well with John Salter, will come in some, but I think the common theme I saw throughout was this notion of faithful service. What is, what is faithful, faithful service? So it would, be, it would be wrong, probably incorrect, to stereotype folks and say this was, this was a person who came from the East and they were refining because if you look at the picture of 1881 of St. Paul's being, uh, being just before his consecration, you see like, Pretty, pretty tough workers, you know, dungaree workers in the in the belfry and hanging out and just it was their faithful service. I think you see that, and I think all those pictures you see that, irrespective of of their backgrounds or whatever. But there was that notion of service to the to the church. So when they came here, they came here for many reasons, not just to establish a church, but they came here as faithful servants to the church in many ways. They came to what was largely an agricultural community to start with in Utah. We know that the early LDS pioneers, you know, they were raising food. They didn't have time to go out and start mining. They didn't have, um, originally, of course, the rail wasn't here yet. Uh, shortly thereafter, we had a, um, the rail arrived in, in, in Utah. But, but just as when we look at these... Um, uh, ideas, these uh, pictures, and all that. Who were the people that became these early Episcopalians? Either one of you. Well, in many cases, there were converts to the LDS Church who were disaffected and had come from England anyway. And as uh, part of the Anglican Communion, we offered a liturgy and a form of worship that spoke to them and reminded them of home. Uh, and then there was a lot of folks... Miners were really strong. Uh, the Elders Church had prescribed mining to their members for a long time. So the miners were typically non-LDS, and they got away out in the rough and tumble things, and the call of a church uh, sometimes appealed to them, not always, 
but it, it drew them. And uh, then we had the folks up at Fort Douglas. Uh, that's where we had the cathedral's first organist who played the or pump organ there for, well, at first, and then a better one that was electro-powered for 25 years. But devotion, I think, played a real strong part. You know, everyone has their own form of it, and we offered a place and some beauty, you know, to handle that devotion and turn it towards bettering the community. Bettering the community, um, looking at history, it's nice, it makes good stories, there's some humorous things, but more importantly, we look at history as what did it do for today? Why, why look at it and what from those early things that happened then do we today that it shaped the church? I mean, the Episcopal Church in Utah is very different than some of it in the East. And I'm not, this is not an East versus West deal or anything like that, but the church here was newer. 152 years in the Episcopal Church is nothing. This is a church that, of course, comes from the Church of England, which comes back from colonial times long before that. But here, there was something about a a church that started in social justice that I think helped form us uh, today. And Russ, you've been on the governing boards of the diocese for some time and been very prominent in the church, um, in the diocese. In these, do you see that church of 152 years ago still formulating what we do today in uh, social justice? Yeah, it's a, a good question. And I, I do, in some respects, in others, I think there's a lot of difference. So I, I mentioned earlier John Salter and this this uh, early person in the in the original St. Paul's and then who went to St. Paul's and established a, a scholarship program for children. And the idea, his idea was that these the children being brought up in the church, and they were, again, those that, that notion of faithful service. Just last week, we awarded one of our high schoolers, the John, annual John Salter Award. And so that continuity is going to be on our, on our board. We have a, a plaque board at the, at the church that shows children starting in 1927 through today. Different reasons. Back back in the day, I think some of memorized scriptures, sort of the Tom Sawyer approach to memory scriptures and that sort of thing. Whereas in this case today, this this young woman who was just awarded actually is living in a, in a in a children's shelter. She's here on her own, and she was our lead acolyte, and she came to church faithfully every week and took things on her own. And so the, the idea is very different, but there's that continuity. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of a lot of differences. We chatted earlier about the church in the 50s when everyone you know wore their Easter hat to church. And, sure. And you see those great pictures, you know, in that time. But the, but even then, as you go back through newspaper articles, they were interested in, in um, the welfare of people in the good sense of the word, the social justice. And political times changed, absolutely have changed, but th that's a common thread that has continued through the church, I think, until today. We may not wear our Easter bonnets to church. We still celebrate great Easter service, but it's, um, the notion is still the same. So the church here was doing things like medicine, established St. Mark's Hospital, it established a number of schools, um, now, that wasn't unique to the Episcopal Church, but it was unique to Utah. Was there a feeling of, um, I don't know, that they looked around and thought, my goodness, there's no schools here? There's no hospitals here? Kurt, you might have um, looked at some of those early records. Why did the church, which really had maybe 20 members or something when, when Bishop Tuttle arrived, 
all of a sudden say within a couple of years, and literally a couple of years, six, seven schools from Logan to uh, Provo, from including Salt Lake and Layton and Davis County in a big hospital, well, big hospital with one doctor. But why did the church spend so much of its effort in non-church related things? Well, not building buildings, but building hospitals and schools. Why was that? Well, the Episcopal Church back then really, well, I think even now more so, has cared for those on the outside margins. And we had children, I won't classify children as on the outside margins, but... Some are. Some are, that's true. <laughs> but Bishop Tuttle noted in his uh, book, his reminiscences book, that there were no formal schools at the time he got here. Um, his brother-in-law, George, Reverend George Foote, actually got here a couple weeks before and started St. Mark's School going, and it wasn't long before even LDS families wanted to enroll their children in a good school because it was haphazard prior to then, as best the farming people could do. And then the hospitals. We had minors, and Bishop Tuttle and his group devised a way where they would pay, was it, I think, a dollar a month or something. dollar a month. HMO. It was one of the exactly. first HMOs. And they got all the health care they would ever need when they needed it. You know, once again, this is social justice and looking out for those, you know, who didn't have any other opportunities for health care or education. So it was far-reaching, and they were... I don't know if they realized it, but they were really looking ahead. It's a fascinating topic today on the Utah Podcapalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah. And of course, we're designed to reflect on our Episcopal Church in our unique land of Utah. And I'm sure the word unique might have come up in Bishop Tuttle's vocabulary when he looked out and, and then after him, Bishop Leonard. And by the way, for those that don't know, the bishop of the diocese is, or in that case, the missionary district, is kind of the leader, sets the tone, sets the mission, sets the purpose of what's going on. So when we say bishop, it's it's very important. It's one person covering how how much of an area was he covering, Kurt? Oh, great. Uh, really, I'm, I don't know that off the top of my head, but it was huge. When you figure all of Montana, Idaho, and Utah, that's a lot. That's a heck of a lot when you're riding a horse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how far in between to find an Episcopalian, do you think? Oh, gosh. Uh, days sometimes. <laughs> days. And I know you've seen notations where you would say, like, oh, on your way to Auden, there's an Episcopalian who might live in Layton or something like that. Yes. And what's fascinating uh, here at the diocese, we actually have records from Eureka a little bit after Bishop Tuttle's time. I uh, forgot which priest did it, but he was assigned down there, and he would note exactly, and then how to find the house that he was told, were, you know, how many steps this way and how many feet left. And it was just, it's fascinating to read, to see what how you had to find things at the time. So, you know, you could go a long ways and not see anybody. Mining towns, once they became a little more settled, typically had people who were interested in church, and the wives especially. And so things worked out, but it could be a long, lonely trip. I think it's important and realistic to answer that question that people have. You kind of hinted on it, but the 
um, interplay between the Mormons and the Episcopalians. It 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 had to have been there. You oh. you it is probably there today somewhat. So you know, honestly, what was it like? I mean, it would be easy to say, oh, everyone got along, but that's probably not the case. Well, it that's true. For the most part, as I've looked at the old newspaper clippings, as I've researched out St. Paul's, St. Mark's, and the diocese, uh, I haven't found too many attacks either way, except when Bishop Tuttle went back east to speak before a general convention and really said what he thought about polygamy and the poor leadership out here. And boy, did that cause a ruckus in the desert news. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we got to say, in fairness, uh, my understanding is that Brigham Young was one of the greatest contributors to St. Mark's Cathedral. You know, he, he did. He was generous and uh, made a contribution. And so that's, you know, there were a strained affection, maybe the best way to put it. Uh, but it was not over the overt attacks that most of the other uh, ministers in town would do in the papers and things like that against the Mormon church, which probably helped, you know, because we've come a long way and we work pretty well together now. It's very important, and maybe yes. that's what set part of that, too. Bishop Hayashi is very open about um, the bridges that mm -hmm. he has built with the um, uh, LDS community, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as he has worked with in, in areas that there is agreement, humanitarian sure. aid and in uh, immigration, things like this. And I guess that goes back to that same bridge. I want to now get to uh, rest one thing on you. Okay. Not on you. That sounds like I've <laughs> uncovered something. And there is nothing in this guy's past. I got to tell you. And, and those that know, Russ has been a civic leader. He's uh, Mr. Airport uh, over the years and has been uh, everything from the interim director to operations director. I mean, this is a guy who knows Salt Lake, a longtime Salt Laker. Uh, so we all, a treasure of our church. Not that Kurt isn't, but Russ has so many people know you from other hats that you've worn here. But now I want to go to your history hat. Um, in your looking at churches, and I know you love to see pictures, and you love to see what would it have been like if we looked inside at the pews of um, St. Paul's uh, when the new church was built and, and the new nave in the 1930s. What would we have seen when we looked in there? What would the kids been doing, the adults been doing? What, what would it have been like? So, yeah, so, so and interestingly, I think that what the continuity came from the, from the old church. In the old church, there was a great procession, and the, the, the Freemasons, of course, a big celebration going in 1917 up to the existing church site from downtown. But they, they transported all of the, the pews and the, and the baptism on. All of those scenes came, they brought with them. Um, uh, and we still use them today. I mean, our service today, we have certain, um, particularly on certain high days, we'll bring out the, the chalice that may have been from the Mount Sisters, for example. Um, from the, the, Mount Sisters. the Mount Sisters. Now, tell a, me about that. That was yeah. an Eastern, the Eastern Church wanted to help the it, church here? Yeah, this is probably one of my favorite stories, actually. So the Mount Sisters were at St. Paul's, New York. I mean, the highbrow church of New York at the time, of course. And uh, when the, when the, uh, the mission church, Chapel, uh, St. Paul's Chapel was being built. Bishop Tuttle went back to the Mount Sisters and asked for a, a donation, a sizable donation. Actually, it was $25,000 to sort of kick off the church. Subsequently, they donated another $25,000. So it was $50,000 that the bishop got 
from the Mount sisters. Uh, Jane Mount had passed, one of the sisters had passed away, and the other sisters were doing this in, in, in her memory. But I, I guess in my mind I see this, and they were they're obviously a well-off, uh, sort of the stereotypical Episcopalians of the time in New York City. And I'm certain in their mind, as we talked earlier, that there's this here, this Wild West. I mean, Utah with the Mormons and polygamy and all the things going on, and they were trying to establish a church, and um, and doing so. I think there was a fascination with the West in general, with Western history from folks from the East, but in particular when you see like the Mount Sisters in New York and donating money to the church uh, here. So we we have the we have stuff the the Jane Mount Chalice and Patent that we use on certain days. I think it's just a lovely thing to see that we have. Yeah. How important is the history to the Episcopal Church? You know, um, the buildings, some of them are very old. Now, we do have newer churches in the diocese, mm -hmm. but we do have some very old churches. You two represent two of the um, uh, older churches, St. Paul's, that beautiful church on 9th East. If those of you in Salt Lake City, just take a look. It's, it's, uh, and that's the second church of it in St. Mark's Cathedral, Cathedral Church of St. Mark, which is right downtown, was uh, been here since 1870 when they put up those first bricks and the one with the big bell that they put up. But um, how important is that? You know, all churches have history and certainly the uh, July is time we think of the history of the uh, Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we also look at other churches, but here the history is important, isn't it? Um, and it's not just because they've appointed you to be the official historian, but it is important, isn't it? Well, it is. And to many historians, uh, or people who have a historian feel for life, history is ongoing. It's not just old dates and names of places. It's tradition, and it's brought forward, and we continue that on. The things that my grandparents were not Episcopalian, but they're church-going folks. And I like to think that I'm carrying on in their footsteps in a way in my own life. And so we do that here at St. Mark's or any of the churches in town and throughout the state, actually. We have some of the older churches, as you've mentioned, but we have newer ones like in St. George. Uh, I think St. Michael's is not terribly old. Uh, no, it's so, yeah. post-war, yeah. Yeah, um, so we've got a wide range where we offer people tradition, and the chance to worship God and to make changes in their communities through outreach programs like food banks. We look upon the church as certainly a different place today. We look at outreach. Some of the social issues weren't even thought of. I mean, this church is very big on immigration. Well, everyone was an immigrant in those days. And so you didn't start thinking, what is our immigration policy? Are you kidding? I mean, everybody was an immigrant. We, we thought of um, certainly over the years when uh, fortunately the doors were open far greater for women. And certainly as we went into gender equality, we went into equality for LGBTQ you know, um, type, um, uh, very big in Pride Week, very big in, in many areas that weren't big issues then. And we look upon and we go, well, that really changed from the 50s when everybody was in their suit and, and their little hats and were probably upper class. Did, was that really the church then? I mean, do we, do we have a feeling of a nostalgia about the 50s that really wasn't the church, or was it? Well, I'd 
Actually, I don't because there wasn't air conditioning, to be perfectly honest. But seriously, though, um, the, the Episcopal Church has not been afraid, afraid to face social challenges or social mm-hmm. change. It might take a little bit of time, but we talk about it. We end up doing something. So, yeah, uh, the it was the good old days, and we joke about being the frozen chosen. Uh, but I don't think we really were. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a misnomer that we like to throw on ourselves. But even back in the 50s, we were, I believe they were accepting of other people. I found records of black congregants at St. Mark's from the 50s. You know, that was not common throughout the United States. Right. Bishop, um, presiding Bishop Hines was one of the first mm-hmm. to march with Dr. King, and and um, it was well noted, you know. I mean, and when I say that, not with great uh, applause sure. in, in our, uh, the mainstream churches, what they called uh, being marching in civil rights was just not expected or heard of, and, and the Episcopal Church did that. And um, But did you see in yours that it ever was this comfortable place that was within the walls that social justice didn't exist, or was it always somebody just pushing it a little bit? So, so I, I think a couple of things. I think that a lot those those the, that picture of the church and the, and the people in the church with their women with their hats and all. I think that was more that was probably more the like the U.S. in the fifties as people sort of that was it was a different time. And so I think the re, a reflection of the of the folks there as opposed to maybe the, what the church was. But maybe going back a little earlier, I mean the notion of, of Bishop John Paul Jones, which you know very well, also who was who was an an early, you know, an early person in Bishop, and, and that was the time of, you know, World War One and mm-hmm. nationalism and all of that. And so the, the church, there was, there was a real push and pull in the church at that time between socialism and nationalism and flying the flag around the church. So the conversation was certainly there, and 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 not, and that was in the you know, 1920s. And, and Bishop Jones, of course, ultimately was chased out of town. It was sort of a sad thing, and you know, the tables certainly turned, and now he's, he's perceived as rightfully so, as a, as a true person of who understood what was really happening and, and fought against that, that the inappropriate nationalism. So the debate was there, which is another thing I love about the church. That debate is there, that talking openly about sort of things. And so social justice issues, that's a common thread again throughout the church. Yeah, I mean, you think a hundred years ago, Bishop Jones you said, I am a socialist, why aren't yes. you? Mm-hmm. And, and really made a great case that, that Christianity is socialism, socialism right. you know, in, in that type true sense. Well, I'm not going to get into this discussion <laughs> with just two minutes to go. We're not on, but but that is is that's interesting. That so that history of that comfortable people just sitting there and not looking out. The Episcopal Church always has had a dialogue. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, uh, totally, Kurt? absolutely. You know, we've looked out for those less fortunate. Um, Sometimes we've done better than other times, but it's it's always been there, and you can find it in our history. Did it ever get us in trouble, other than internally? Except for Bishop Jones. No, I can't think so. Um, yeah. So do you think sometimes churches have been afraid of social justice uh, in Utah, saying, wow, we're just bucking something here? It's possible. Um, and possibly social justice in Utah was accepted more by the non-LDS churches as a way of proving they were different. You know, I can't prove that for sure, but sure. I do. I've always wondered. You know, well, the dialogue is important. We have about a minute to go. Anything about the history that you just sticks out and says this is truly 
represents who we were, what we are. Maybe our, um, you know, just something to, to, is it the hospital, is it the schools? What, what do you see that is the legacy from that history that we've talked about today? In my opinion, it's education. Education. Okay. Because I also think back to the Girls Friendly Lodge in Vernal in 1909, set up for the girls from remote farms to come into town to be educated. Uh, and then we had the boarding school at Roland Hall, the St. Mark's School, and we've always pushed that, even though they're no longer, you know, mm-hmm. the state now does public education. But, you know, to me, that's when you, nothing's worse than, worse than ignorance. That creates fear. So I think with our education, we've helped eliminate a lot of that. Russ, was there a time at St. Paul's that you would have just liked to have been there in the pew other than right now? <laughs> there, there is, actually. I would love to have been there that day when the, when the Freemasons came up with their great hats. And there were drums and, there, and, and, and an orchestra marching from 4th South up to 9th East. I would love to be in that day. And, and they brought it. everything up and yeah. laid the cornerstone. great. Yeah. And, and with pomp and circumstances. Pomp and circumstance. and, and <laughs> ritual at its greatest. And Bishop Molten leading them leading in their... Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, it, so you would have liked a bit. Would you have been wearing one of the hats with I, the plumes? I, I would have been watching one. I'd probably envy me with the big feathers <laughs> on it. But yeah, I don't know. And, and, and the cornerstone, absolutely. Absolutely, I would love to be there. That, that's the day I'd, I would probably pick. So it's the plumes of all the, the history of all the history of, all the history of this church. <laughs> the, you, you look at the, the hats and the plumes. Well, that's hats. well. With that, I don't know how what else we could talk about. You've been listening to the Utah Episcopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah, designed to reflect on the Episcopal Church in our very unique land of Utah with big hats and plumes and marching bands and things that you wouldn't have even guessed and I wouldn't have known if I wouldn't have listened to this. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese and Russ Pack, who is a historian and about everything else over at St. Paul's and Kirk Cook, who is our official diocesan historian and also is now looking at the 150 years of the Cathedral Church of St. Martin, which we're going to all have to get back together and talk about history. I think we only covered about three months of the 152 years. Thanks so much for listening.